Hey guys, welcome to the 61st episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, storytelling, and directing. I'm Oren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enloe. Today we've got Dean Peterson. He's a second-time filmmaker with the film What Children Do, Making the Festival Rounds. Uh, we're going to talk to him about finding your own voice and the comedic stylings, but also how to embrace the limitations of a small budget and make that into uh, an aesthetically unique movie. And I also have an epiphany during our interview with him where I realize what a director's style actually means. Yeah. Yeah. You really have a like a, <laughs> a, eureka an, moment. a eureka moment. So stay tuned for that and everyone. But before we get to that, Oren, what have you been working on lately? Well, thanks for asking, Matt. I just shot a Charmin toilet paper branded spot type thing last week, which I just showed you a rough cut of, and it's a little rough. We're still, yeah. we're still working on it. It's a little pretty bit. good. I like it. Um, I know how to watch a rough cut. It's uh, everyone says that, but no one. Yeah, no one to does. Do it. Yeah. yeah, this rough cut has you know we use Audio Jungle for music because it's the cheapest place for music. Coincidentally, one of my least favorite. I like PremiumBeat.com. I love extreme music. But anyway, maybe it is cheap. But yeah. Yeah. But like we're sending this cut to clients and it says audio jungle, audio jungle, audio jungle. Like in just, the background. Sorry, just to give people context, because I, I bet there are plenty of like young filmmakers out there who haven't had the luxury or uh, anxiety and tragedy of um, working with music libraries. But you can download um, temp music tracks, but they will be watermarked with the name of the um, service provider. So premiumbeat.com or Audio Jungle will just be said out loud in the middle of the song so right. that you can't use it without paying for it. You pay for it, you get the one without the watermark. Exactly. It's a very effective way to prevent people from stealing your music. And a good way to confuse clients and make you look like <laughs> yeah. a chump. I mean, how many times have you sent an edit to a client and said to them, hey, just so you know, there's like a watermark in the music. And then you get a note back saying, we heard some weird thing going on in the sound. Like every single time, right? Yeah, it's yeah. like clockwork. So My favorite is when they're not super familiar with the name of the um, network that you're buying from. And they're trying to guess like, what's a audio bungle? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So I love that. My thing with clients... I, I, I'm going to use my time up to talk about watching a rough cut. And I know we talked about it before, but nobody can watch a rough cut. That's just my philosophy on showing people things. It is true. Even the smartest, most experienced people I have known have a hard time watching a rough cut. Yeah, the best directors. You've got Steven Spielberg sitting here watching a rough cut with you and the audio goes from super loud to super quiet. He's like, oh, why did it get real quiet? You know, it's like so annoying. I think that's another way of saying that all of those details that we obsess over, making sure everything, like the moves are really smooth, that the mix sounds great, that, you know, like things are fading in and out, all of that stuff, which can feel futile or like underappreciated, is actually essential to your jokes working or your scares working or your movie working. Yeah, to me, in an edit, especially short form stuff, when you don't have time to develop characters and moods is you have a series of beats and you have to hit them you have to make them it's a joke you got to get a laugh it's a scare moment you got to it's, it's something really cool you got to make sure it feels cool and it's not just the picture it's like the sound it's the volume it's the visual effect it's the color it's a brightness anything that jars you out of the moment you know because you're cut from one shot of a guy talking to a girl in the two shot they're bright and in the coverage they're dark 
It's just like distracting. And so to me, part of a decent rough cut is removing anything that's going to distract you from uh, absorbing what you're watching and getting those moments and those beats to work. So anyway, we just watched this rough cut. So that's why I'm a little charged on this rough cut business. But it was it was really fun. Oh, I'll tell you one interesting thing. Um, We had one package of Charmin toilet paper and they call it the picture package it doesn't have any barcodes on it no upc symbols no deals no dates no Mm. anything it's like the cleanest version of it but we only had one of those and our lead actress was kind of carrying it around this house and it was like the holy grail (laughs) this like package of toilet paper and we had a backup package Mm -hmm. that we used for rehearsals and things i don't know so i thought it was funny to see how important this toilet paper was and also I wasn't really familiar with this idea of like a picture packaging, mm. like what the difference is between packaging that is ready for camera versus packaging that isn't. So fascinating, man. The weird things you learn on every project. Yeah. So Matt, what have you been working on lately? Well, yeah, you know, it's so funny. Uh, I too have been working on a horror spoof where instead of a horror movie, it was one weird thing. And this one was like, the actress Allison Williams is awkward at parties, basically. But it's funny because um, we're always up for the same jobs, but normally only one of us gets it. I, I just think it's really funny that we both spent the last week and a half doing horror comedies. Yeah, but you got Allison Williams and I got toilet paper. I got Allison Williams for uh, just a couple hours. She was great. But uh, that's it's funny. You kind of see the trade-offs, right? Like I'm sure your budget was much bigger. And like you had time, but you also had a client that you had to worry about where like I had very little time, but like kind of got to do what I want. Like it was a situation where I think the threshold for success was like, oh, everyone knew the cards were really stacked against me. So just making a video that made any sense and was at all good was like kind of a success. You know, like that was the bare minimum was like, oh, this makes sense. Cool. (laughs) Right. Allison is in it. Great. Well done. You know, um, and that's just like the nature of, you know, we talked to Matt Pollack about how hard it is to work around a celebrity schedule. She just, she was great. She just, you know, only had X amount of time. Right. You know? so, like a little under four hours, you said, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you kind of, you rig uh, everything you can beforehand. Everything's as planned out as it can be. And does her makeup and wardrobe have to be part of that four hours? Yeah. Yeah, she came basically camera ready, which was part of the plan, but she did have a style team there as well. That were her, like her that were, people. That were her people, yeah. You can always tell because they're like so much more fabulous than everyone else on set. <laughs> yeah, isn't it weird? The Yeah, celebrities have glam squads, which are pretty much like do a makeup person, a hair person, and a wardrobe person. Right. At the very least. And they are, I mean, they're all kind of crazy, right? They're kind of crazy and also like, like awesome so much fun you know like they know that their their jobs are like this funny combination of like very glamorous and also very silly um and they have to take it very seriously but also no one's curing cancer and that's true for all of us obviously as a director you have a weird relationship with them because traditionally the costume designer makeup artist hair person works under you and you tell them what to do and you pick which ones you would want to hire and that's kind of its own artistic decision because you know who's good at what and what you want for each thing but when a celebrity comes with their own they Mm -hmm. oftentimes from my experience don't really care what you think (laughs) yeah they don't care what you think um and also 
they have more experience dressing and styling this person than you do. And their only prerogative is make sure that person looks dope at all times. And they're protecting the brand. Like, right. oh, sure. right. Allison would never wear red with black. Yeah, you know? exactly. And you're like, well, like, okay. Well, um, I guess that ruins my whole plan. <laughs> she's supposed to be dressed up like a vampire. I was in a situation where like, oh, she needed to look great. Like, I want Allison to look great because like that's a selling point of the video. You right. Know? So. Well, um, cool. And that yeah. video is already out. We can it check is it. already out. It's on the show notes, guys. Cool. Uh, let's get into it with Dean Peterson. Dean Peterson, welcome to Just Shoot It. Hello. How are you guys? So good, man. We're good. Thanks for joining us remotely from New York City, voted by Movie Maker Magazine today as the number one place to be an independent filmmaker. Did oh, you see I, thought, that? I thought Vancouver was number one. Did they I were tied. Oh. New York and Vancouver. Is that true? Yeah. Well... The one thing that might not be true is that I saw it today. I don't know if it came out today. Oh, okay. But actually, one of our listeners who had written us and asked if he should move to L.A., and we were like, uh, yeah, he sent us that article and was like, well, L.A. is only number three on this list. Yeah. Um, I wonder what that's based on. <laughs> it's weird. Even Movie Maker makes like their website so that you have to click through to <laughs> read lists, you know, so mm-hmm. that they can show you more ads. Oh, I hate that. Kind of annoying. So I, I read the New York one, and I read the Los Angeles one. And, you know, the L.A. one, they're like, there's more studios per square mile here than anywhere in the world. And it's interesting. They really pointed out that L.A. is like all about networking. Like when you move to L.A., have a script ready, have a short ready and say yes to any time you're invited to go out, which I would think that way everywhere. Every right? city. <laughs> I'll tell you what, man, Vancouver is an incredible city. I, I get the appeal of living there for sure. Yeah. And then there's like places like Atlanta where there's so much production or like North Carolina or a place like that that it's just much easier to get a job because they're just like starving for, for talent, crew yeah, people. Yeah. But yeah. it's not easy to get a directing job. No. Um, and still stand by LA as an up and coming place in the film world. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like such an obvious uh, thing to, to publish an article about of like, New York and Los Angeles are the hot places to make movies. <laughs> right, and they had like small towns to make movies, Cleveland, Ohio. And there's all these people in the comments pissed off that, that they called them a small town. Like Cleveland's a small town. Yeah. 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 They have a very cool. big chip on their shoulder, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so you're in New York. I am. Um, you've, you've got your second feature coming out. Yeah. Uh, it comes out next Friday. Next Friday. Yeah. Congrats, man. March 3rd. Oh, man. Congrats. Wow, 3 3 17. You should have waited until 2033. Would have been way cooler. Fucking marketing people. Yeah, right. yeah, I guess I get that. And uh, Josh Rubin is in your film, who is part of the directing duo of Josh and Vince. And we had Vince on our podcast last week. So that's pretty cool. They're both uh, incredible, handsome, talented young men. Do you find it intimidating to direct directors? No, I actually, I really like, I like directing people that are directors and writers, um, just because I feel like they kind of, are much more interesting and kind of usually bring their own kind of thing to the table as opposed to kind of just trying to interpret something that I've written. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like, yeah, somebody that's a writer, director, actor is kind of like the most fascinating person for me to work with, I think. Yeah, it is interesting. I think the more uh, experience I gain, the more I realize what sort of creative input bigger stars have on the creative process. The actors have more time on set than anyone else, right? Well, except for like crew members, but like, 
creatively speaking, like they really get to dig in. And so it can be a real asset to have somebody who is dialed in, knows what works, what doesn't work and all of that. I guess to me, something that makes a good performance is the ability to kind of let go of the idea that you're on a set and there's a camera pointed at you and there's lights you know, pointed at you and you have to hit marks and timing and all that stuff. Like whenever I try to act, it's always just like horrible because I'm like, Wait, where's the camera? Where's the light? Where's my mark? Where's this? And Dude, like, I was an extra and I'm sure I ruined every <laughs> shot. I felt so bad. Yeah. Like if you are thinking about the camera, then you're basically giving a bad performance unless you're like hosting or something. Yeah. Directors are scary to direct. Uh, yeah. I, every time I've ever had to be in the camera is just like literal hell. Um, but it, I mean, I guess it kind of makes me appreciate, you know, why actors are, are so good and uh, why I cherish them so much is because like it's so fucking hard to do it and it's good to kind of remind yourself of that every once in a while. I mean I just did a non-union thing last week and it's just like amazing to see the difference between a good actor and <laughs> a, like a good seasoned actor and like a brand new actor. Yeah yeah it's it's experience versus an experience. Yeah. It's like actors I feel like never ever get enough credit for just being reliable. A bad actor, is, and you know, compared to a good actor, it's just astonishing the kind of chasm between the two. And it kind of takes you working with a bad actor to really be like, holy shit, like good actors or even just competent, uh, serviceable actors are so much better and easier to work with. Whenever I'm stressed out on set, I have to kind of stop and be like, what's, what's the issue here? Like, why are things going the way they're going? And oftentimes it's like, oh, scheduling or whatever. But like every once in a while, it's like, Oh right, I'm. T- I take a certain thing for granted, whatever the position is, for whatever reason, it's not clicking in this time, and so you just have to work so much harder. Everything like things that should be effortless just become like this huge labor. Right, and with the actors, it's where it's the most noticeable because everyone's noticeable. looking at them. Yeah, sure. Yeah, um, and I- it snowballs, right? Like an actor knows when they're not crushing, you right? Know, and then it like. And they see they the client that. behind the monitor like, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, or like whispering to each <laughs> like other. in their head, yeah. Yeah. Um, we had, on our shoot, we had an actor, really nice guy, but just the blocking, he had to like pick up an anchovy and drop it in a blender. And he couldn't time the anchovy pickup and his dialogue <laughs> and the drop. And the client was like, no, no, that's just not working. And he was like, uh, 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 can you just give me like five minutes to go like somewhere? And I was like. Yeah, and just take this anchovy with you and practice dropping it. Yeah, I find actually most like most of the problems I have with actors on set, like ninety five percent of the time, it's anchovy related. Um, yeah, totally. so that's something I yeah, they're I slippery. Understand? There's one last thing, and then we'll get back to you, Dean. <laughs> when I worked at Disney, I had this actor on this show I did, and he was like kind of a newer actor, and we're doing this digital show, and he booked this like big ABC Family show right after after our show and he was telling me he's like it's so weird like on those tv sets like if the dolly move was right if the camera's in focus and you know if the the lighting is right then they'll move on and so (laughs) me like as an actor on tv i know that like i have to give my best performance on take one because that's all the only reason more Yeah. yeah well the only reason they'll do another take is if like something technical was messed up otherwise they'll move on because they have to shoot so much in a day yeah and that that's like when you have amazing actors the first take is usable you know yeah yeah television um, actor people seasoned television actors are just like so incredible because they're really like trained to kind of just like do it perfectly immediately yeah i'm so not used to that that it always kind of bowls me over and i feel kind of bad like 
nailing it the first take, I'm almost kind of like, should we do another one? Just <laughs> right, right. Uh, like, like pretend uh, like I no. know what I'm doing. I absolutely <laughs> love that. Let's go again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it's a, when you're working with kind of newer actors and like you, it takes you four takes to get the dolly move right, and yeah. then you get to worry about the performance, and you're like, oh, now we're on take eight, and everyone, and we're late. Yeah, like, and the fucking anchovies just, are all not working uh, the way they should and it's just yeah Angel. that's why you got to work with pro dolly grips too yeah. yeah or sardines well anyway so back to your movie dean can you tell us what it's about yeah it's called what children do and it's a comedy about um two sisters who haven't spoken in a number of years and they're kind of brought back into each other's lives by their grandmother who's become sick and so they go home to their hometown to take care of her and kind of are forced back into each other's lives and kind of have to work out all their problems that they've kind of let fester over the years. I, I mean, it's kind of a classic indie recipe of like, it's a bit of a homecoming story, which everyone can relate to. And then like a character drama, you know, a relationship drama kind of piled on. And all. Yeah. And it, I do. That's a good point. There is, that is kind of a common theme in indie films is like the adult gone home. Mm-hmm. Right. Which yeah. is something it's probably because, we're all, we all do Deal, that. Dealing with it, yeah. We move to like New York or LA and then we go back to our homes <laughs> yeah, forever. Yeah, you, you get Christmas break, you're like, what should I write my movie about? I finally have some time off. <laughs> and you're like, everyone here is idiots, but I'm in love with this girl from my <laughs> school. Um, so did you write the script for this? Yeah, I did. Um, I kind of, I mean, I had been kind of like circling around it for a number of years. So I kind of had the idea, the original germ of the idea, like, four years ago and then it kind of took me maybe about like a year to actually write the script cool and is it about people that you know no i mean it's about two sisters and i've I've kind of always been like fascinated by that dynamic um i have two sisters and it, it isn't really based on them but i kind of like that dynamic and haven't really seen it done in like a very satisfying way in in movies but yeah i mean all the characters and kind of their problems are actually more based on different aspects of my own personality and my own experiences yeah it's just a exercise in pure narcissism basically well let me ask you because i kind of i took a look at your other work uh, specifically ving rames yeah which i thought was really great i thought it was really funny oh thank you um and and like your kickstarter for this movie and um i kind of pretty quickly you see a little bit of a theme where and listeners probably can even pick up on it you're like you're it seems like you're dry as a bone but like have like pretty hard jokes right like you're a very funny guy but like it's all pure deadpan would you say that this movie is like that as well and is that a conscious decision or is that just your personality or am i just reading into things yeah it's it's never really like conscious i guess i've sort of just maybe figured out what my voice is to some degree and kind of embraced it my new movie is definitely it's definitely kind of in that same vein and maybe amplified more so just because the characters that the two main sisters are the culmination of all these different kind of characters that I've been writing, like especially Ving Rhames. And with these ones, I kind of was able to sort of just like swing as hard as I could. And so it's kind of the same tone and a lot of the same sense of humor as like my past films, but maybe just kind of turned up a little bit. Yeah. So listeners know Dean emailed us and was like, hey, like I listened to the podcast. I've got this movie coming out. And normally, Warren and I don't really bite on those emails, not because of those movies aren't interesting or anything like that, but it's a little, like, we try to focus the podcast on, like, you know, people who are working professionally all the time and, like, we have some sort of relationship with so that we can kind of 
glean a more meaningful interview out of that, right? But when I saw your stuff, I was like, oh, this is a very clear, very unique voice straight away. Do you know what I mean? And I thought, wow, like, well, that would be an interesting thing to talk about and, like, kind of crack open a little bit. So, you know, you said earlier, like, oh, you kind of have acknowledged your voice and are trying to lean into that. When was the first time you were like, oh, like, I'm kind of, I'm like funny and like dry and deadpan. Maybe I should do that more. Do you have a specific moment where that was clear to you? No, I mean, I still, even to this minute, uh, feel that I'm deeply unfunny. And so you you can't really think that though, right? No, I mean, I truly do. Like, I. I mean, I think, you know, you're making jokes. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think a lot of times, I mean, just in my daily life, I use jokes as like a some sort of defense mechanism or a way to like feel more comfortable or um, sure, welcome to the club, man. Relate to. Yeah, it's a great club. We're all very happy. But no, yeah, I, I don't really like I don't know. I mean, I mean, I don't know if anybody identifies as being like, I'm funny, but I kind of have sort of found throughout writing a bunch of scripts and sort of making a bunch of different movies that there's certain topics and certain kinds of jokes and certain characters that I'm drawn to and that I like writing and, you know, those kind of actors that I like working with. And so, yeah, I mean, I've kind of just sort of uh, honed in on those and embraced them and tried to kind of incorporate them into my work as much as possible. But it's all, it usually is all kind of unconscious like I find that uh, you know in all the different scripts that I write there are certain themes that come up and certain types of jokes that recur but it's never really like a decision it's kind of just it kind of just happens so to just to kind of like try and boil down your style a little bit for people who haven't seen your stuff yet to me and correct me if I'm wrong it feels like oh like we've been talking about the kind of that dry sense of humor and with kind of grounded characters but in like of heightened situations but then it's a little still like for lack of a better word like indie mumblecore slice of life sort of stuff Mm -hmm. um so which kind of oftentimes feels like lends itself to improvisation or loose scripting things like that we call that new yorkie new yorkie sure (laughs) sure but but yours correct me if i'm wrong just from guessing it looks like it's pretty precisely scripted right whenever jokes are involved it feels like you kind of have to plan those a little bit more and it's not just people talking about their feelings. Yeah, no, totally. And I mean, my sense of humor is definitely, um, it's very like specific, I found. And it's kind of like, there's usually some sort of specific pace to it. There's almost kind of like a momentum, I feel like. And so, yeah, I mean, I've, but that's kind of something that I've, I've had to sort of develop and sort of um, embrace and like work on. Because my first movie, Incredibly Small, I kind of opened it up a lot and it was uh, heavily improvised. And there's definitely elements of what we're talking about of my sort of sense of humor that I have now, but um, maybe in just like a much more unrefined sense of it. I I kind of know what I think is funny and uh, kind of influences that I've had that I'd sort of draw upon. And I guess those all probably just sort of happen to be sort of, you were saying, sort of dry, sort of biting, comedic movies. Like Whit Stillman, like Metropolitan or Last Days of Disco. I feel like I, I really, like the first time I saw Metropolitan, it was like a revelation of just like, you can do this. Like you can just make these movies about people that are really funny and like sort of seemingly indulgent scripts with really specific jokes. So yeah, I mean, it, it's like, you know, like Whit Stillman or like Noah Baumbach. I don't know. I mean, people like that that are that are sure. sort of, I mean, cerebral is uh, mm-hmm. an awful word, but they just have like a very 
specific tone and kind of dry like sense of dorky humor. yuppies is what you mean what you mean basically um that's exactly that was my nickname in yeah. high school actually yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. uh you're forgetting hal ashby that's the other person you were going to bring up I was going to bring that up. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. And it is something in the there is like a, somewhere in the middle between like Wes Anderson and Woody Allen. Is, yeah, sure. There's something. No, a bone back, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah I like like that, but I, there's uh, I I always sort of like filmmakers that have like a little bit more of a sharper edge than like those people, and I think Noah Baumbach is kind of a good middle ground, like you're saying. Right. Do you write everything you direct? Yes, I have so far. Have you written something? For other directors? No, not yet. And you haven't directed something that somebody else wrote? No, I haven't. Not not to the not to this point. The other big question I think like that most of our listeners are kind of grappling with, and when I say most of our listeners, I think I mean Oren and I. How do you recognize your own voice? What do you like doing beyond just liking the thing that you're doing? And like how do you sharpen it? Right? Like that's kind of the question I think most artists no matter what medium it is they're doing, you're kind of like circling around a little bit. Right. I feel like the writer-director, though, is like they're coming up with what they want to talk about. They're writing it in the voice they want to write it, and then they're shooting it in the way they want to shoot it and cutting it. I feel like when you're the writer-director, your voice is much easier to... It is your voice, like mm-hmm. just by definition. When you're just the director, just the writer, it's a lot harder which is why it's like so impressive when a David Fincher or a someone oh, Steven oh. Spielberg has a voice, you know, because in spite of not in writing spite of, the script, yeah, yeah. despite not writing stuff. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, can are we allowed to ask you what the budget was on this second movie? You are. I probably we haven't even played it yet, so I probably shouldn't uh, divulge. Very low, I guess, is the answer. Oh, right. So you're still looking for distribution. Yeah. Okay, cool. So you you made this movie, you raised the money, you kickstarted most of the budget or some of the budget. Um, I kickstarted uh, a good chunk of it, and then the re- like the rest of it, I spent like two years like working pretty m- miserable post production jobs and just saving like half of all the money I made for two years. Well done, man. <laughs> and what were your post production jobs? I was editing mostly. I was editing like I was editing infomercials for a while, and I was producing videos for a golf magazine for a while. And did you learn anything from editing that like helped you on your movie? I mean, I know you're editing infomercials and, you know, kind of unrelated things, but like while you were editing these things, you were picking up skills that helped you with your feature? Um, no, I, (laughs) (laughs) no, but I mean, it was, it was like kind of instructive in, in a way of like, I shot my first movie in 2009 and then my, second one is coming out this year so it's like an eight year gap and i think i had kind of fallen into this like weird complacency of like waiting around for something magically to happen and i think through working these kind of unpleasant day jobs that was kind of the thing that spurred me to like actually get off my ass and like make my second movie so in a way sometimes a shitty day job can be a real gift actually yeah especially when you're it's like in the industry I feel mm-hmm. like you can, well, two things. One, I feel like like you can have, it can have the opposite effect. Like, you know, you can work on something and you are cutting it in an artistic way and you have these kind of long shots and, 
you know, good music. And then the producer comes in and is like, let's cut it real fast. This is too slow. Let's need to be 60 <laughs> seconds or whatever. And you are like reminding yourself like, well, when I make my movie, I'm going to have long cuts, you know, right. I'm not going to have dialogue that explains exactly yeah. what you're seeing on the screen. I have a hunch. There's not a ton of golf in your movie. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you still kind of, even if you're working on stuff you hate, you're still kind of refining your taste and learning tricks and I don't yeah. know. I, or how to shoot golf better. You yeah. know, like you, you could have a mini golf scene that's so touching. Or action. I, I mean, I'm being a shithead, but like, but yeah, like I think that that stuff all applies. And then, what I'm saying. yeah, and the other thing, like you said, you know, we talk about this a lot on the podcast that like there's a lot of first time feature makers, but there aren't a lot of second time feature makers. And it's like, and I think your story is pretty typical that you make mm-hmm. this first feature and you are waiting for something to happen and then it takes eight years for you to realize you can't wait anymore. You have to make the next thing happen. Yeah. And you even see people like Seth Rogen or whatever, like not waiting around to sure. get more offers after they make a movie. They're like writing more things and making more things. I remember Melissa Leo won the Oscar for the fighter the fighter yeah and she said the number one mistake she made is she was like oh now i finally did it i'm a oscar winner i just i just won the oscar finally offers are gonna start coming in and it took her you know months and months maybe even a year before she was like oh fuck i still have to go do it myself and you know what was interesting about her win is she did all the campaigning for herself she took out a full page ad in like daily variety and the hollywood reporter saying like melissa leo like vote for her for the finder full page like glamour shots yeah (laughs) it was incredible Um, but yeah that self-promotion is something that is hard especially when you've made your first movie and people are like oh you made you made a movie you went to film school or whatever you did like you know how to work in this i got a job for you it's editing these golf videos <laughs> and you're like uh how much does it pay and you're like okay well i guess i'll do that yeah and then yeah six years later you're like ah, oh, geez or the most the more likely uh movie. scenario is that like you make your movie and then you apply to these jobs and you're like hey i made a feature film and they're like great we don't fucking care like edit these golf videos <laughs> right yeah that's after I made my first movie, uh, like I interviewed with all these managers and agents and I was like, Hey, by the way, my YouTube channel has like 40 million views and I have like 40,000 subscribers and they, no one cared at all, <laughs> at all, at all. And so it's like, it's funny how people only care about what they want you to do for them. Yeah. Um, so I think what our listeners could take from this is if you have that golf video editing job plan your way out asap yeah right save that money up and then make a movie with it it's a pretty is a pretty great plan right yeah and the the other the other good thing about the specifically the golf job um was like somehow i had sort of like slipped between the cracks and i wasn't really like uh, accountable to anybody and nobody really knew what i was ever doing i would go to work and i wouldn't have anything to do and so i spent a lot of my time doing just like pre-production for my movie on the job running budgets and like calling agents and like like sometimes just like leaving to go take meetings i guess i was grateful to have a sort of i mean an extraordinarily lax day job where like literally i think everybody forgot that i worked there (laughs) (laughs) like the stapler guy i i did have a job once upon a time where i was in a different building than basically all of my bosses yeah like a little bit of time to like come in late or like take an extra long lunch that's also a meeting or like write some personal emails is a real a real gift for sure for a while and then you eventually just want to kill yourself 
Yeah, you you can just rot in that that cube for sure. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. They'll be like, oh, Dean didn't eat all of his pizza dibs. <laughs> Nobody knew so, my name, so it didn't matter. <laughs> so let's go back to your movie. So you have, you know, you you had probably a smaller budget than you wanted, which we all always do, mm-hmm. but. Did that affect how you shot your movie at all? Like, were you like, well, look, we're only, we're not going to have as much time or we're not going to have as much lighting or how, how did like your resources inform how you shot the movie? I mean, I, I think like generally I'm like, ex- I'm an extremely pragmatic filmmaker. And especially since I write, you know, the scripts that I direct, um, I had the opportunity to kind of like comb through the script knowing that we didn't have a ton of money and sort of like, write out anything that I knew would be mm-hmm. practically impossible. And so, yeah, I mean, I did like a pass on the script where I was like, you know, this scene takes place of them driving, but like, can this take place of them parked? And like, mm-hmm. uh, there is a scene where somebody like jumps in a river and I was like, do they have to jump in the river? No, they don't. And so like, I'm always thinking with three different hats of like somebody writing and directing and also like having to actually produce this thing. And so, I mean, I kind of also reverse engineered it of like knowing you would probably only have a couple weeks to shoot and not a ton of money. And so I tried to keep things confined as much to like, you know, the main location with a few uh, satellite locations and like as few of actors as possible. And so, yeah, I mean, constantly with, with almost every decision I was thinking practically. And did you have that location in mind when you were writing? Um, yeah, I wrote it with like a specific house in mind, which we were a- thankfully able to get. And when you say a house in mind, do you mean like, oh, my aunt's summer home? Or do you mean like, oh, just one you were familiar with? Uh, no, it was, was there a connection to it or not? Uh, yeah, it was my friend's parents' house up in upstate New York. And I had been there a bunch of times, um, to just to visit. And I kind of like, just loved it and thought it would be. You can, it. you can say party. It's okay, man. <laughs> um, what? <laughs> it, it was kind of the ideal location just because it was this big, beautiful house kind of secluded and there was like a guest house. So like we all also stayed in the house that we shot in, which was another major reason why I wanted to shoot there just because it saved mm-hmm. us money on hotels and also just time of, you know, you were 10 seconds away from set every day. How stinky did it get? Um, it got pretty smelly, and also like, um, in the guest house where we were all staying, like it got really cold, and the pipes froze, so like the shower didn't mm. work. So showering was so, at a pretty, so pretty stinky, pretty minimum. But I think most of us stayed not too stinky. I think I I I love those stories because I there's a part of me that always loves the idea of like making a movie is kind of like camp. You know, like you don't live in the real world. It's all totally isolated. Everyone's having a great time. But then everyone kind of hits their breaking point where they're like pretty tired and kind of over it. And they still have a lot of movie to make or their parents aren't picking them up for another week. You know, (laughs) like I always have those sort of uh, fantasies as well. And I kind of tried to like create that um, with this movie and like somehow it actually like worked. It was very much like camp and everybody got along and like we shot really quickly and so there'd be like days where we would wrap like five hours early and just like sit around and like literally like people were playing guitar and everybody was drinking beer and stuff and (laughs) it was just like a fake camp movie. That's pretty incredible. Um, I mean and the only... the last, Sorry, the last day that we shot, it was like really hot. And I think we finally all actually did get really tired. And so I think there was like 
45 minutes where we were just all kind of tired and like crabby. Um, but for, yeah, yeah, I'll take it. I'll, yeah, I was like stunned that it didn't happen sooner. Is there anything in particular you did that you thought worked really well towards fostering that environment? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a really small crew and small cast kind of all living together and kind of after we would wrap, we would all like hang out instead of just kind of going back to our hotel rooms and watching TV. And so we kind of were like all professional and like working, but also kind of had this sort of extra bond that made everybody feel a little bit closer, which I don't really, I can't take credit for. I think it was just everybody was very nice and uh, beautiful. Yeah, I mean, weird thing, like I've made movies before with people and then just never really talked to them again. But like all of the actors in the movie, like I'm just like friends with now and we hang out. Uh, what, one last question, then I'll kick it over to Oren. So you said it was a small, intimate crew. What yeah. uh, What are you talking about? So it was like me, my DP, we had two producers, a production designer, an AC, a sound guy, and that's it. Nope. Yeah. Makeup, wardrobe, nothing. Um, we had we we had a makeup person come for two days for one specific scene, but otherwise, all the actors did did all their own makeup and. Uh, wardrobe techno crane operator yeah um, you forgot him that you was i him. did that myself yeah. oh cool oh, nice yeah. yeah i kind of moonlight as as that <laughs> yeah i feel like that's kind of I, when you hear about like the indie movie dream right it's like this is a pretty clear narrative of like oh i figured out a smart way to make a, a movie on the scale that i can afford with great people and then I, I love keeping a minimalist crew it's a thing i think about all the time of like how do you make something that's interesting and cool and stylized and polished but also with that aesthetic choice of like uh of it being kind of bare bones wait so no gaffer no i mean we i mean my dp and the ac were just like our true everything they're true renaissance men and like are just like so i mean i'm sure they would have loved to have a gaffer but um they were just like they're so like industrious and uh brilliant that they're able to what sort of lighting are you guys working with is it like just like oh be smart and shoot at the right time of day or like do you have a ton of gear or what's that like um yeah my the dp darren um and i both kind of like sort of minimal um setups and so like yeah we there would be a lot of times where it would be sort of just time of day and the lighting upstate is really pretty. Um, mm-hmm. And then for other scenes, like, you know, a couple lights maybe. Um, it was never really, there was never really any insane setups. It was maybe three lights at the most, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have a lot of night scenes? We did have a lot of night stuff. Um, and we, yeah, we, we would go shoot like out in the town next to the river and stuff. And those were probably the ones that had the most lighting. Um, but yeah, like in the house, you know, maybe we'd have like a light or two lights. Yeah. And can, I didn't know I said I only had one more question, but one last one. What cameras were you guys shooting on? Um, we shot on the C300. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. That's a great like run and gun camera. How was it with, I feel like light sensitivity is a little tricky with that one. Um, yeah, it was really, it's, it's really good. I mean, I love. I'm I'm really uh, impatient when I'm shooting, and I just want to be shooting and doing. And so uh, the C300 is like amazing for that of just 
being able to kind of like shoot and then make adjustments and shoot another thing and not have like hours and hours of downtime. And like, yeah, in terms of low light, it's it's really good. I mean, we did a lot of denoising in post, but the image quality is amazing. And so the actors, the cast, were they mainly new actors that you met for this movie? Yeah, I think there were a couple of people that I had worked with before, but all of the main people um, I had never worked with previously. I had I had known Josh and um, Alex, who is uh, plays the boyfriend or the uh, sorry the high school crush, but all the rest of them, for the most part, I kind of hadn't worked with before. And so when you're casting them, do you tell them? Like, hey, I want you for the part. Just so you know, there's no makeup. There's no wardrobe. We're all sleeping together in the same <laughs> house. Uh, yeah, I mean, I tried to be I tried to be up as upfront with that stuff as possible. Um, I don't always think that that, like, really sinks in until you're mm-hmm. up there doing it and that kind of stuff. But I think everybody was sort of interested in, in doing something like that, of kind of sleeping in the house that you're shooting in and uh, kind of working with a really small crew everybody at least claimed that they were interested in doing that whether or not that was true or not i don't know i think that's like an unintentional upside of like working with a younger cast as well right mm-hmm. like yeah you're like oh, i'm in my 20s early 30s like yeah, yeah that sounds like so much fun like i'll quit my waitressing job peace i mean you i know? know my wife would like very much want a makeup artist on set <laughs> and a wardrobe person and a place she can like relax. I don't know. It's funny because uh, like my first movie, that's what we did. We rented a house. We all, we shot in it. We lived in it. It was like insane. It was very There stinky. was like 19 of us sleeping in there. It's at one point we had a dog um, and a bird, I think. <laughs> that does sound pretty gnarly. But, that's uh, pretty hairy, man. <laughs> and it was like a sketchy part of Rochester. We got like our, all our wardrobe stolen one night. But, um, oh, wow. Now I feel like I, I would still like that, but it, most of the actresses I know, I feel like just want, you know, they just need like a little bit of room, but you had, I feel like you had a small enough crew and kind of respectful enough people that it's, it doesn't sound like an issue. But to me, yeah. that's like, like the makeup artist, like my number one reason for wanting a makeup artist is. I'm like always like so flustered on set. Like, where's this? Where's it? Yeah. Like, where's the camera going? Where's the lights? Where's... That like, I just want someone saying like, just with the actors saying like, hey, you are important, you know? Um, or you're shiny. Yeah. I, or I, you're shiny. Of course, I always miss that. Of course that. there's that too. Yeah. But like for real, like there've been plenty of shots where I'm like, oh, why didn't I just like have them fly in? I'm so <laughs> right. stupid. Yeah. I mean, um, I think, I think we were able to get away with a lot of, that kind of stuff because it was, I mean, all things considered, it was like a relatively not easy shoot, but like, you know, we weren't shooting 18 hours a day and like mm-hmm. it was, I think, relatively fun and like uh, a good experience for everybody. Whereas I think if it was like grueling, grinding 15 mm-hmm. hour days and like everybody was miserable, like I don't think that everybody would have been as cool with not having hair and makeup. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as you're not having a good time, you're like, I need a trailer to go chill in. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah, No, for sure. So did you rehearse with the actors and all? Yeah. We, we kind of, the casting kind of was a little bit last minute. I think we had like one day of rehearsal with the two main actors and we had like a couple of just like meetings with everybody, just kind of acquaint everybody. And then, I mean, when we were on set, we would have a lot of time when you know they were setting up lights or we were just kind of in between stuff that we would 
go sneak off into a room and rehearse for like an hour and kind of just work on the scenes that we had coming up. So that's kind of where we did most of the rehearsal. Matt and I do so much short form stuff where it's like you you do one day of casting, you meet the actor for like 15 minutes, you show up on set, you remind them who you are, you're the director, <laughs> they're in hair, makeup, wardrobe, an hour later you're on set and you're like, okay, you ready? Okay, and action, right? Yeah, and it's cool. like- So funny, thank you so much. A little faster this time, <laughs> Like, isn't it interesting? Don't you think, I was just thinking about this because I, this thing I just shot last week, I was like, you know, it, it was good. But if we had a day of rehearsals, it would the performances would have like been perfect, you know? And we just don't have time to refine them. Um, it's weird to me that there's no rehearsals for commercials. I know that they're like short, you know? Yeah, that but, is weird. Um, yeah, but there's, there's no rehearsals for TV shows either. Well... Yeah, but there's, there's the whole pilot there, process, which is months long, trying to find the cast and everything. And then once the the cast is cast, you know, you write the script for the ca- the actors. That's true. So I don't know. And okay, so um, my other question: Did you have a shot list for everything? Like, what's your process? How do you shoot a movie? Um, how do you shoot a movie? Um, no, how do you shoot a movie? How oh. does Dean shoot a movie? My DP Darren and I, we spent a lot of time kind of going through every scene and like talking through kind of everything that we wanted to accomplish and how we wanted to approach it. And we did make, you know, a pretty detailed shot list that we pretty quickly just kind of threw away as soon as we started shooting. But um, it did, it was kind of instructive to kind of just at least know what we wanted to like accomplish ahead of time, um, even if we didn't necessarily get this specific shot and then that specific shot. Um, it was just really beneficial to uh, sort of pre-visualize like what we wanted to do before we got there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, right. I'm, always, I'm yeah. always open to throwing whatever we have planned out the window as soon as uh, you actually are on the set. And are you one of those types of directors that tries to get the camera out of the way of the performance or to like help tell the story of the performance like to do zooms push-ins spin arounds rotations frame things in certain ways to make people uncomfortable or are you <laughs> capturing it or are you composing yeah it? like what yeah. did you have a strategy like can you tell us anything in like the way you shot your movie that was um like like a visual plan of any sort yeah i mean um i feel like i'm a very uh and I don't know if this is like a good thing or a bad thing, but like I'm a very non-technical director in many ways. Um, I feel like I'm my bottom line is sort of like actors and like performances and sort of like interactions between people. And so my the main concern that I have is like how do we capture this and how do we kind of get out of the actor's way so they can do their job. And then I try to also sort of backload it so that I'm, I am also thinking about like, a, you know, a visual aesthetic approach to what is inherently a visual medium. Um, and, and when you say backload it, how do you mean? I mean like, a, you know, when I start thinking about a scene, I'm like, okay, this is how I envision the performances. These are where the actors are gonna be. Like, how do we cover that? And then sort of stepping back and being like, okay, well, is there, you know, a more interesting way we can do this? Like. You know, what are we saying by putting the camera here as opposed to over there or like the lens choices? Um, so I do sort of like try to force myself to do that as much as possible. But kind of at the end of the day, the main thing I care about is like the performances and just mm-hmm. capturing that and allowing that to happen. And then if you can also make it visually interesting, then that's great too. <laughs> yeah, totally. I feel like sometimes in situations, because I, I think Dean 
I'm you and I are more similar, and I think Warren, you like to lean a little harder on on the, the technical camera. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sometimes as a failsafe, I'll be like, okay. Mostly, I just want to like make sure like the jokes are on screen, but yeah. like I'll create like a couple little rules that will kind of just like if I know if I follow these rules, then it'll have some sort of style, you know. And it's like uh, maybe there's a compositional rule or like a juxtaposition that I like to play with or like some sort of color theory or something like that. Something just a little something that like if if that's the only thing I do, there's still an aesthetic to it beyond just like capturing it, which especially if it's like a sketch and it's like there's three in a day, like hose it down. You know what well, I mean? Well, to me, like the worst shot list for me personally, and, it, and I'm actually, this conversation is really just like making me think a lot about like what a director's voice and style is. And it's like, you know, to Dean a scene with two people parked in a car could be the same as a scene in a car driving, you know? But mm-hmm. to me, if a producer's like, hey, it's really fucking hard, we can't get the process trailer, we can't rig the cameras, whatever. <laughs> like, we need to, can we just set this park, this, in, you know, the scene in a, with a parked car? I'd be like, no. It's like a totally different scene, you know? To me, because, like, the movement of the car is, like, what I'm thinking about. But to you, you know, you're probably a little more focused on the performance of the actors, which is not to say that you don't care about the movement of the car. I don't care about the performance of the actors. But to me, like one of my tools that I may, like Matt said, lean on hard is like the camera and the motion and the movement Mm -hmm. and the scope. And this thing I shot last week, there was a scene, this girl wakes up from a nightmare. And I thought I really, really strongly felt that that scene needed to take place in the morning. Like she Mm -hmm. woke up because it's like the opposite of what she just experienced. And every, the AD, the producer, the DP, they're all like, look, if we make this night, it'll be so much easier. We'll shoot at the end of the day. We only need one actor. It'll be so easy. And I was like, no, like it has to be day. Like let's screw up the entire schedule. You couldn't light it for morning. So we ended up lighting it for morning, <laughs> but, but we needed to get more lights pretty much. Sure, you know? yeah, and we needed to not, and yeah. I, we needed to not look out windows. Right. Um, it does change things for sure. You know, so it's not as, wasn't as perfect as I wanted. It was like a compromise for sure. But to me, like the worst version of a shot list is wide shot, you know, medium, close, wide, medium, medium, close, medium, medium, cross, cross, yeah. is clean singles. Yeah. yeah you, to me, sorry, even like an over is like. You're de- you're describing my shot list. <laughs> yeah, over the shoulder like is, is like a slightly elevated version of a medium <laughs> shot um, because you're at least giving some geography, you know, and some hints and you, you get to decide how close people's faces are in that shot and stuff. So that's like if I'm trying to make a shot list real fast, I'll do that. Wide, medium, 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 wide, medium, medium. And then I'll be like, okay, now let's think about this scene. Like what is the most interesting thing about this scene? Can I set up a shot or some blocking or a camera move or something that will like highlight this part? Um, Or maybe it's a cool transition. Like what's going to be the last shot in this scene and the first shot in the next scene? Like how can I do something interesting with those things? And yeah, I mean, it depends if you care more to make movies like Edgar Wright or like Woody Allen, you know, I don't know. I guess that is that is what style is. And uh, that's why I get really disappointed when I can't use the camera, because I feel like that's that's what I like to do is use the camera. Well, I, I think you should check out Dean's short thing, Rames, and his subsequent features as well, because I think that you did a really good job, Dean, of like do, using a minimalist approach to but adding a ton of style to it 
right? Like there's a lot of wonders in your pieces. Like there's a lot of good character work. There's very little like shot reverse shot in Ming Rames. Like there's a couple times where I was like, oh, but for the most part, it's just like set a tableau and like let it play out. And that in itself is its own version of style. Yeah, I mean, some people do it all in the production design, just the camera on sticks, and it's like this most beautiful shot you've ever seen, and the blocking, like Citizen Kane, you know. Yeah. Um, everyone has their own thing. I'm, I'm definitely not saying one is, ben, you know, comparing them in any way. Um, but it's, I don't know, it's just interesting. I'm, I'm just thinking about it, talking to you. Um, yeah, I so. mean, it's, it's also like, um, I mean, entirely possible that I'm, it's just like my very pedestrian approach to like, uh, making movies but I don't know like I even when I when I do try to uh, intentionally um, have a lot of coverage or sort of unusual camera angles in a scene like I always sort of end up just reverting to like sort of very simple coverage and just sort of focusing on the actor's performance because when I watch I feel like when I watch movies like that's kind of what I'm I'm drawn to I'm not really yeah. it's really distracting to me when there's really good actors in a movie and it's just kind of like these insane like camera angles and like the editing is really like obtrusive and so maybe i'm it just kind of turns me off a little bit or something or maybe i'm just lazy i'm not really sure yeah it makes sense to me yeah and it's not pedestrian at all i mean i think you know hitchcock said like the role of the director is to like be clear Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know and so if to you clear is like a camera on a tripod and two actors like acting their heart out that is just as valid, probably more valid than, you know, someone doing a zoom in on like a driver's license to show you the birth date on it, you know? Well, I was <laughs> going to say also, like, if you look at like Peter Jackson or Sam Raimi, those guys are maybe the ones I'm most familiar with of like, they were just making like movies in New Zealand and in the woods of Michigan and like developed their own style that way. Sort of like you were saying, Dean, of just like doing what they liked for you that's like, focusing on performance and, you know, kind of doing something a little more minimalist. And for them, it's like screwing a camera to a board and running with your friends as fast right. as you can or like the woods. To Yulene Quang yeah. that we had on the podcast before, it's like getting awesome wallpaper to put in the background of a scene, you know? Yeah. It's like, I think I'm, I just had this eureka moment. That's, that's what makes you unique, right? It's like just where you have so little time to make something, where are you going to spend do you your focus? time? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I mean, so much of also is dictated by the um, amount of resources that you have. And so if, if you're doing a really small movie, um, which I usually am, it's kind of like um, the Eames, like, quote, like, do the best for the most with the least or something. Um, I probably totally butchered that. but um, Even that you're like, oh, I'll bring up an Eames quote here, <laughs> and I brought up Sam Raimi, is telling, though. Do you know what I mean? Like... Yeah, and and the resources, like you, I don't know, you know Darren Aronofsky, he kept this like journal when he made the movie Pie, like every day what he did, he like rented an apartment in Manhattan back when you can do that, Um, (laughs) and uh, like wrote all of Pie in like a month, he like locked himself in there, the only thing he like let himself do other than write was to go to like junkyards and collect old computer parts, (laughs) Um, because he was basically production designing the computer that his main Uh, character had. It's called Euclid. It's the computer. Okay, Euclid. Um, while he was writing it. So it's like, and you hear the guy that directed The Witch, um, I oh, forget what his name yeah. is, but he had directed a short film before that where he did all the production design himself. And you know, Peter Jackson, that's like his background. It's like art and 
and design and stuff. So it's like, that's why his stuff is so visually interesting because that's what his background and sometimes his movies are a little boring (laughs) because he spent so much time (laughs) on that stuff right so yeah i think it's obviously it's about resources but it's also about i I don't know i I think maybe what you're saying is like everyone has a finite number of resources right like even if you're on the biggest movie ever but it's it's what you want to spend your focus and time and attention on that kind of helps define you as a filmmaker yeah, like those guys on YouTube, Raka Raka, that I like endorsed before. They're like crash cars into houses for zero dollars. Like they're just like finding old cars and asking people if they can crash them into their houses. You know, it's like, um, I don't know, just what whatever you are interested in, in telling, like the story you're interested in telling, you know, so. so. So Dean, I can't wait for you to crash a car in your third movie. No, I can't wait to see. I, I mean, your stuff is good. I need to, I really need to watch Ving Rhames because Matt has been talking about it all day. <laughs> but um but yeah do you have any uh any kind of last tips or anything that you can give our listeners on like you know one takeaway you had from your movie or from your career or something helpful um like, that's i don't know specific? i mean i feel like the the most like helpful things that i've gleaned from like other filmmakers and that kind of helped me propel towards doing the second movie was just sort of realizing like you know, like we're talking about if you're willing to kind of work within very like limited means and you're able to kind of pull it all together yourself, there's really, you don't really need to rely on the kind of traditional gatekeepers that like keep so many first time filmmakers from making their second film. Um, Because if, you know, if you're willing to shoot a movie for, you know, little to no money, there really isn't anything that can stop you from doing that other than your own hole of depression from working in a golf uh, video job or something. Or do you have a wife or kids or any of those? Uh, I have a wife. Yeah. Yeah. That. Well, that's that's cool. That, like, that's the thing that I find sometimes makes it hard to go off, and do that movie. But yeah, my wife did, is man. a colorist, so that kind of helps. My oh, cause that's as awesome! Well. God, free color. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that's cool. Uh, well, thanks so much for talking to us. Yeah, this is great. Thank um, you guys so much for having me. Yeah, and so tell us how can we see your movie, see, hear about it, follow you on Twitter, all that stuff. Um, you can check out my new movie, What Children Do, at whatchildrendomovie.com. I think that all of my other handles are Dean Peterson underscore. Oh, wait, hold on. So no space between Dean and Peterson? No space between Dean Peter Dean Peterson, no space, and then underscore. There's another... Dean really Peterson funny. that snatched up all the good um, handles. <laughs> Before we lose you, uh, we do a segment at the end of our show called Unpaid Endorsements where we talk about cool things that we've seen this week. Unpaid Endorsements. I'm writing a new movie right now and um, my writing partner and I just had a meeting with a doctor at TGI Fridays last night. Um, <laughs> Sorry, are you endorsing taking meetings at TGI Fridays? Um, I'm kind of just blanket endorsing TGI Fridays. Sure, yeah. Um, they have really potent Long Island iced teas, as I've come to find out. Um, I guess that is a, a selling point for TGI Fridays, is just like the booze. Yeah, I mean, I think the main selling point is that it's always Friday in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I guess that um, booze goes along with that. But yeah, I mean, does that count? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good one. I would say so for sure. Perfect. I'm, um, ho- I'm hoping to parlay that into an actual paid endorsement. Where they, <laughs> um, oh, good point. Have a sponsorship from them. What are you, what are you guys? Do you guys have ones? 
I so my friend Liam Sullivan. Have we had? Has he been on the podcast yet? Is he Mr. Shoes? Yeah, he played no, Kelly haven't. in the YouTube video called Shoes. Um, Let's get some shoes. Yeah, yeah. Check him out. Uh, he sent me this video today. It's a lecture by Misha Tenenbaum called "Signal in the Noise," and it's uh, just this guy talking about like data mining movies in order to find editing trends and it, be able to quickly analyze a movie. So he like mm. uh, one thing he did is he like took the frame, a frame, every single frame of a movie, like average the colors in that frame, stretch them vertically. And put them like, you know, side by side. Mm -hmm. So, and he calls it a film barcode. So basically you can see, you can see just this like line of color and you can kind of get an idea of a color palette of a movie. And he showed like the two, like two older James Bonds versus two newer James Bonds. And like, they were all four of them were dark, but the newer ones had like a lot more gold colors in it Mm. in them. And he kind of, and then he, uh, showed this other guy that did a similar thing, but the more movement there is in the frame, the farther away that sliver would be from the center line. And he basically, it's kind of like data mining movies. It's really interesting. And he, one of the things that he noticed is that they used to do a lot more J cuts and we do a lot more L cuts nowadays. Mm. And in general, movies now have a lot more cuts, uh, which he attributed to just us shooting a lot more coverage now than we used to shoot because we're shooting Mm -hmm. digital. Sure. So just kind of an interesting essay on like video essay on how um, editing has evolved. Now I feel like a, an asshole <laughs> mentioning TJ no, no. Fridays after this. No, no. TJ Fridays is awesome. Astute uh, highbrow recommendation. We love it. Isn't that the restaurant where they have to wear all the buttons on their shirt? Flare. The sure. flare? Yeah. That, I don't, yeah, the office space. My guy didn't have any flare, my waiter. Uh, what? You got ripped off. Well, yeah. that, that's why he gave you a little extra booze in that Long Island. That's true. He had to make up for it. Uh, so my endorsement is uh, a movie called Finders Keepers. Have I talked about this one, Warren? Mm-mm. Boy, it's good. So Finders Keepers is a documentary available on Netflix. Um, and it is one of those documentaries where you're just like, these characters are all larger than life. How did the filmmakers find these people? It's so incredible, so funny, so great. It is about these two men who are in a feud because one of them bought a a smoker in a um, auction after like kind of like a uh, um, what do you call it Uh, what was that show where like people would buy um, like just they would kind of auction off like stuff in like a a, a, antique roadshow not antique roadshow the one where they've got like the um, like they've got a garage or something like that storage wars storage wars that's what I'm thinking of so this guy, this guy buys a smokers in sort of a, a, a smoker in sort of a storage war situation where he just he buys the smoker and because the uh, owner had like forfeited on um, paying the rent for this this uh, storage space, and he finds a human foot in it. <laughs> I'm not joking. Uh, he finds a human foot and then <laughs> starts charging people to see the foot and tries to get famous off of. Having this foot, it's like I said, a real human foot that's been kind of like mummified. And then the dude whose foot it is gets in this feud with him about how it's his foot and he deserves to get it back. (laughs) And that is just the premise for this movie. It's incredible. 
It's called Finders Keepers. It's <laughs> it's so watchable. So this guy found someone's foot, and that guy wants his foot back. <laughs> and he wants his foot back. And it's this war between them. And it's like they're both really fantastic characters. They're like really human and like just filled with hubris and like hate each other, but also like it's all kind of a little sad at the same time. It's yeah. really a wonderful movie. Wow. Does so, this take place Finders in Keepers. Oh, where does it take place? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, probably. I wish I could remember. Maybe Virginia? I'll be thousand dollars is Florida. <laughs> <laughs> West Virginia, maybe. Um, no offense if we have any listeners there. Uh, well, cool. Thanks a lot, Dean. Thanks for hanging out. Um, yeah, thanks so much for having me. excited about your movie. Uh, yeah, yeah. We know it's premiering at a festival soon, and I'm sure that peop- you will tell us which festival that is um, on Twitter or your movie website. I will. You can find our podcast uh, at justshootitpod.com. At justshootitpod on Twitter. And I'm at SmiteyPyleg. I'm at Mr. Matt Enloe. And if you get a chance to rate us and review us on iTunes, that'd be awesome. Uh, music was provided by the Free Music Archive and the artist, Jazar. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.